This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Just before you listen to this podcast, a quick shout out to say that we are also on Patreon and you can follow the podcast there and get access to a new podcast that we're doing called the War Criminals Book Club. Sounds intriguing. Check us out over on Patreon where we're under Asymmetrical Haircuts. All of them actually ended up in the safe house in Arusha for decades without legal documents, without, without job, without actually anything. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. It's now more than a year since eight people from the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, either they had been acquitted or they were released after serving sentences, they've been stuck in a house in the West African country of Niger. This is such a strange story, and probably many of our regular listeners are somewhat aware of it in the um, roundabouts kind of way. But when you go into the details, it's just extraordinary. And now I have the extreme joy of having Janet be Janetpedia about this, because she knows more about the ICTR than I do. Take it away, Janet. Oh, God, I don't know whether I can do the same kind of flow that you normally have, Stephanie, but we've got a few facts written down, so I'll do my best. So let's start off with the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, based in Arusha, Tanzania. It's now actually closed. It was set up in the 1990s, basically off the back of the Yugoslav Tribunal to deal with the Rwanda genocide. that happened where more than 800,000 mainly Tutsis were killed in a few short weeks or months. The top perpetrators were tracked down and brought to Arusha. Remember, we did that podcast with uh, Serge Bramets, which also talked about how they got hold of one of the more recent alleged perpetrators. That's uh, Felicia Kabuga, who's on trial at the follow-up institution to the ICTR. That institution has one of those awful names. It's the something like the International Residual mechanism for international criminal tribunals with a bit of UN bit added in there as well. So we just generally call it the MICT. And that has this president, prosecutor, registrar, and kind of roster of judges who come in and out of the trials. And all the people basically who were sentenced at the ICTR in Arusha were then sent off to specially purpose-built jails in Mali and in Benin, in Benin. And that's where they are. So, so far, so normal, but then things got weirder. Well, yeah, I've been aware of this problem for a, for a while. And I know everybody who's around the Rwanda Tribunal knows about this, but not everybody in the whole world does. So there were a number of people who'd served their sentences or even a number of people who were acquitted. I mean, you know, it's a normal part of judicial processes. People do get acquitted, even if, let's say, the Rwandan authorities, those in Kigali, don't like it. They weren't found guilty, and then they had to go somewhere. Or those who served their sentences then had to go somewhere. And in the end, there were you know, eight people who were in Arusha, who were not in the detention centre there. They were in, as far as I understood, safe houses. And then the court decided that it needed to find a way of 
dealing with this and wasn't able to find places for them to stay. And they did something very strange. What exactly did they try to do? Yeah, all we've got is the court documentation on it. So I'm hoping our guests are going to elucidate a bit. Apparently, they did a deal with Niger, where they shipped them off to a house in Niger with a certain amount of money. And that's where they're now living. So first guest that we've um, that we've invited on is one of their lawyers, Kate Gibson. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. Thanks, Steph. It's great to be here. Kate's not only a defence lawyer, and we've seen her many times in The Hague at the ICC and also connected to different cases at the, at the MICT, but she was also recently chosen to be head of the Bar Association there. So congratulations to you, Kate. Thank you very much. We also wanted to give a bit of context in the podcast, so we called Barbara Hola. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Thanks for having me again. It's really nice to be here. Barbara is a researcher and an associate professor at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam, the Free University, and she did a great podcast with us way back in episode four on ICTY perpetrators and what happens with them uh, once they leave jail. So Barbara, to start with you, you looked at the ICTR and the former Yugoslavia and the Sierra Leone Special Court back about 10 years ago when we had 120 people convicted in total. How many of them are due to come out of prison at some point? Do you have still those those figures? Yeah, it's a very good question. And theoretically, actually, all of them are to come out of the prison at a certain point of time, because life imprisonment in, in the ICTY, at the ICTY and ICTR is actually not life, but it is also a limited amount of time. So uh, the president back in the time decided that after 30 years, also those who were convicted to life imprisonment are actually eligible for early release. So theoretically, actually, all of them can be eventually set free. There is also, of course, a question of their age, because many of them are quite older. So it depends on how how many of them actually will survive the 30 years to apply for early release. And another another thing is actually that not so many got life imprisonment, right? So at the ICTR, at the Rwanda Tribunal, I think it was 17 who were convicted to life at the ICTY, it was only seven. So the rest actually will will and have been early released. What's actually happened to to people? I mean, I'm imagining that many don't want to go back to Rwanda. And I had a quick look and I saw that there were some former mayors like uh, Ignace Baglishema and John Mpambara, who were in France. There was former Minister of Education, André Ruamakuba, just uh, getting my Rwandan pronunciation correct. Sorry to everybody for getting it wrong. I think he's in Switzerland and a former préfet, Emmanuel Bakambiki, who's meant to be living in Belgium. But I mean, therefore, they do actually serve sentences and go somewhere. Yes. Oh, well, yes, yeah, some of them do, but I think that, as you said in the introduction, as Kate will, will elaborate on the situation in Niger, that was actually sort of epistemic at the ICTR. So since the beginning, for all of those who were acquitted or, or served their sentences already, and there has not been so many because the sentences at the ICTR were quite lengthy or lengthier than at the ICTY, there was a problem what to do with them afterwards because they didn't want to go back to Rwanda for yeah, the fears of persecution, new trials or whatnot. 
And states were actually, other states were very much reluctant to accept them. So as you said, Janet, some of them actually indeed managed to find a state to, for example, reunite with their families, because oftentimes they wanted to join their families who were living somewhere else. But it turned out to be really difficult. And I think that the, like from the examples that, that you gave, a couple of them went to France, indeed, a couple of them to Belgium, Italy, Switzerland, some of them to Ghana. And I guess maybe Kate knows better, so you, you will say a little bit more. And I think that the only case that I know where sort of like the reintegration to society after, after being acquitted or detained during trial and acquitted will, was, uh, the priest Senkimana who actually went to Italy and then join, join like church there. That was the only case of the ICTR defendant where actually the process was relatively smooth with all the others. It was just. Very difficult, a lot of political and legal sort of fights, I would say, to persuade states to, to take them in. So, yeah. And as you said, oftentimes, or many of them, or all of them actually ended up in the safe house in Arusha for decades without legal documents, without, without job, without actually anything. Before we move out to this, on to safe house and the conditions there, and we'll ask Kate about that. I wanted to check with you, Barbara, how do you compare that to the former Yugoslavia? Because from my knowledge, most of the people who were acquitted or released after prison in the former Yugoslavia are now back in their mostly countries of origin and some of them being revered as war heroes. I can think of only one person that probably might not quite be welcome in his state of origin, who would be Drazen Ademovic, who was one uh, person who testified about uh, Srebrenica and, and volunteered uh, to give himself up to the court. So I wonder what you can say about kind of reintegration of how it differs between Yugoslav tribunal and the, and the Rwanda tribunal. It's absolutely different. And I think it depends also on the post-conflict sort of reconstruction and political conditions, right? So in Rwanda, actually, the previous conflict opponent is in power. And in Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia disintegrated. So, so the ICTY convicts and those who were acquitted can very easily join their former bodies to an extent. And yeah, indeed, majority of them returned back. Some of them returned back to political lives and are very active in public, public discussions, sort of promoting the same narrative as, as or same similar largely nationalistic narrative as, as before and during during the war. And I was recently actually editing a special issue on this topic, actually on post-trial injustices, as, as we called it. And Lina Strupinski from, from Lithuania did like a systematic review of, of looking at all the ICTY defendants who were released and what happened to them. And she had some figures. So actually 36 of them are active in public life. And only 14 are inactive without having any obstacles. So that's fundamentally different than ICTR. So Kate, let's uh, bring you in to get us up to date on the conditions in Niger. Your client and others are there. Have you been to visit them or do you have some insight and to tell us what, you know, where they are? And then we can explore how they got there and, and what the process was. What, what, what's it like for them? Yeah, well, terrible. The conditions are really, really bad. I, I put it to my client, Prosper Magiraneza, yesterday that the conditions in Niger are far worse than when they were detainees at the UN prison in Arusha. And he sort of agreed hands down because at the UN prison, they were able to get fresh air and leave their cell every day. And they had access to healthcare and to food. In Niger, 
it's eight men locked in a house, right, with nothing. They have, no, they have nothing to do. They have no books. They do, they're locked inside by armed police, literally staring at the walls for a year. They, they can't leave. It gets to 45 degrees most days in Miami where they are. They have no fans. They have no air conditioning. A lot of the time they have no electricity and there's no generator. But the real crisis for them is, is health, right? These are men who, I mean, the youngest is in his 60s, but the oldest is 84. They're not in good health physically. And, you know, we've really seen their mental health deteriorate over the last 12 months being in this situation. You know, they have no psychosocial support. We're in touch with the local Red Cross as their lawyers. So if they have an urgent medical issue, like they contract malaria or something which happens, the local Red Cross staff will sort of ferry them to and from the hospital. But the Red Cross doesn't have the ability or the mandate to treat their chronic conditions, their underlying conditions. So in reality, Unless a solution is found, these men are going to die one by one in that house. That's that's what happens next. That's where we are. It's a roll back a little bit. How did this happen? Did these men voluntarily agree to go to Niger? Could you have foreseen that the money would run out? You know, how, how did we get to this situation? They agreed to go to Niger. These eight men went voluntarily, but but they had been told by the registrar of the mechanism, so the residual mechanism in Arusha, that the Niger government had agreed to give them residency permits that would allow them to work and that they could eventually apply for a Nigerian passport. And it's that passport that they could use to then go and visit their wives and their children. And for my client, for Mr. Mugiraneza, that's the most important thing. He wants to be able to see his kids and his grandkids. So on that basis, with that understanding, they went and they were given 10,000 US dollars each, which has now run out. They didn't think it was going to run out because they thought they had the right to work, right? My client is the former deputy prosecutor from Biumba. He speaks five languages. He's educated. He has these skills to offer and he wants to live a dignified life and work. And, and that's what would happen domestically, right? If in Australia, someone's acquitted of a criminal offence, they then are released sort of unblemished to return to their lives. And if someone, you know, serves their sentence, they're judged as having, you know, repaid their debt to society and they get to regain all the civic and social rights that are enjoyed by all citizens. Internationally, this just hasn't been worked out yet. And so we saw that when these men arrived in Niger, things went very badly wrong. They were stripped of all their identity documents. Um, they were detained at gunpoint in this house, which is where they've been for 14 months. It's an absolute crisis. I just can't, can't believe every day that it's still happening. But I want to understand why that agreement changed. I mean, that's something that was agreed by essentially a bit of the UN the, the residual mechanism with the Nigerian authorities? Yes. Why did things go so badly wrong? You know, we all have our theories. Um, in my job, I'm, I'm not much of a speculator, but 
What we can see, certainly, is that immediately after they went to Niger, Rwanda's ambassador to the United Nations, you know, made this speech at the Security Council, sort of complaining about the fact that this had happened, and she warned the Nigerian government to make sure that these men didn't, you know, use Niger's territory for subversive activities that would undermine security in the Great Lakes region. You know, that narrative started, and it was soon after that that things went wrong. So, we're not behind the scenes. We can't see what's happening diplomatically. All we can see is sort of the outcome of what's happening and the efforts that are being made or not being made to to find solutions. And so Rwanda has been extremely critical of this move. They've also made moves because they want these men brought to Rwanda. Why won't they accept to go to Rwanda? Well, I mean, taking my client, Prosper Migiraneza, when he was acquitted by the ICTR in 2013, the Rwandan prosecutor and attorney general gave these press interviews where he said that this acquittal was a miscarriage of justice, Prosper should never have been acquitted. And then importantly, the Rwandan National Commission for the Fight Against Genocide came out and said the same thing and said he's a genocidaire and they've published reports saying this about the exact same accusations that Prosper was acquitted for at the ICTR. So He has a reasonable expectation that if he returned to Rwanda, he would be arrested and detained and retried for the same charges that he's already been acquitted for. And obviously that's a violation of, you know, double jeopardy. But more than that, that's not how he wants to spend the rest of his life. You know, he he was in prison for over 10 years in Arusha before he was acquitted and he wants peace and he wants to be able to live with his family and he's entitled to that. What do you want the managers or the president or the register of the UN residual mechanism to do? What what are you pushing for as lawyers to resolve this situation? I mean, there's incredible political will at the moment around international criminal justice efforts. I mean, we don't have to look further than Ukraine to see you know, that we all appeal to be all in for international criminal justice in 2023. You know, you have these 123 states who've all signed up to the ICC and we were all at the ASP in December. Well, the defence wasn't at the ASP, but everyone else was at the ASP in December. And you got to see all these states stand up and, you know, claim their commitment to international criminal justice. And this political will can't, just be directed at securing convictions, right? Putting people in prison. Criminal trials have two possible outcomes, convictions or acquittals. And if they don't, then they're not real. Like we're all just playing a game, which I, I don't think we are. And, and as a state, you can't support and play your role in the International Criminal Justice Project without also accepting to provide support to defendants when they're acquitted or when they finish their sentences. They can't just be, you know, shoved in a house in Niger with all the states just pretending it's not happening. You know, these are people. They have rights. They have the right to family life. They have the right to freedom of movement. They have all basic human rights. So when we have this situation, like we now do at the ICTR, that the people who were acquitted, which is no mean feat, you know, just quietly, that doesn't just happen. When these people who are acquitted then end up back in prison and we don't fix that, what we're essentially saying is once you're charged as a war criminal, 
you know, your life is over. Conviction, acquittal, it doesn't matter. And that makes this whole process a farce, right? And it's not. A lot of us have dedicated the better part of our lives to making sure it's not a farce. So I I do expect the principles of the mechanism, the registrar and, and the president to harness this political will that is there for supporting international criminal justice and direct it back here and explain to states that how their selective support only of convictions is is really dangerous and it and it's wrong and it's led to this situation that's horrific and and can't be allowed to continue. I'm really hearing everything you're saying, Kate, and and thinking, yeah, this this makes sense. But I'm just wondering whether there is actually a practical way forward. So just bring Barbora back in on this. I mean, if we look at any other example that we can see not only the Yugoslav tribunal, but maybe the Sierra Leone special court or maybe any other tribunals you've looked at. I don't know how wide you can go. Is there, is there any, any way that we can see, you know, what, what could be a new norm around this? Yeah, well, it is, it is very difficult to answer, but I, I, I absolutely agree with Kate that it seems that at international criminal justice, justice ends with conviction and only conviction is, is sort of the desirable aim of the, of the, of the whole system. Because you can also see it in, in sort of, uh, yeah, post, post trial justice is basically non-existent. And it's very difficult to come up with, with practical solutions because in the end, what it comes down to, because what international criminal justice does is that they take individuals out of their country, bring them mostly to another country, hold them there for years, decades at times, and then, then there needs to be a solution found to put the individual somewhere back. And then what it depends on is uh, basically the political circumstances in the country which the person comes from. And in Rwanda, political circumstances are not amenable for sending these people back. In Yugoslavia, they are. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. So I am not aware of any sort of example comparable to Rwanda where I would say, wow, this is, this is it. This is how, how, how it should be, actually. One thing that I can think of, and that doesn't guarantee any success, because in the end, what it comes down to, again, is the political will, is sort of next to harnessing political support, of course, is perhaps trying to amend the statutes in a way that states will be obliged, for example, to, to accept these individuals back in case their families reside back or to their territory in case their families reside on their territory or something like that. But in the end, you know, it's really, it comes down to the willingness of, 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 of the states and yeah. Majority of the states are reluctant to accept alleged genocidaires or perpetrators of international crimes, even though they were acquitted. Because oftentimes also the prosecutions are very limited at the international level. So in that sense, yeah, it is difficult. So why do you think there's been such kind of poor planning on the part of international criminal courts where, you know, when you are gearing up to have these trials, you would assume that they are aware that possibly there are acquittals or at least convictions, and then people will serve their sentences and then you have to do something with them. And that apparently didn't happen. So why do you think that is? I, I'm not sure I, I, I'm able to say why, but in a way, if you look at the system, the system is very 
sort of retributively oriented, fight, fight for sort of geared towards convictions. And in that sense, these other outcomes, which are absolutely normal in criminal trials, at the beginning were not sought out. I think that it's sort of like a fundamental system error of the, of the, of the whole international criminal justice system, because it also is a system which sort of relies to a very large extent on state cooperation. And not only when it comes to, you know, post acquittal and reintegration of, of those, but, but on many other levels. And then states are just reluctant to, to take on their territory someone who was accused of international crimes. And Kate, what is it like for you as a defense lawyer? Barbara saying that the whole system seems to be geared towards conviction. And how is it to work as a defense lawyer in that system? And when you deal with clients who you've, you know, after very hard work, have managed to get acquitted, which also is, you know, huge work on your part. Do you feel also that the tribunals are very much geared towards only one outcome? That question is answered by the fact that there was no plan in place for people who were getting acquitted. You know, the idea, I, I met Prosper Miguranese when I was 25 and now I'm nearly 45, right? So that's 20 years that I've known this client and the fact that after all that work and his acquittal, in my view, as someone who knows that case is absolutely the right outcome, after two decades together, the fact that he's sitting on the floor in a house that he can't leave, it's sickening. It's just, oh, it's, it's, it can't be right. And let's not forget the ICTR cost $1.3 billion. You know, think about that, the logistics, the facilities, the staff, the planning, and, and none of that was dedicated towards, all right, what's going to happen? Not only when people get acquitted, but when they serve their sentences. You know, and, and Barbara's idea of amending the statute is a really good one and it's something we talk about as a group of defence lawyers. The, the mechanism is a UN mechanism. The ICTR was a UN tribunal. All states have an obligation to cooperate with these tribunals. But we see the judges consistently finding that cooperation refers only to arresting suspects handing over evidence, surrendering accused, building cases. The judges have never gone that far to interpret cooperation as meaning you've also got to give asylum or residency to people who are acquitted. So that opening is there and we have invited the judges to, we have served that up to them many times and none of them have, have smashed it over the net for us. So, you know, I think it comes down to this larger problem that states view these international criminal trials as, as Barbara said, these mechanisms for just, you know, punishment and this is how we're going to get the war criminals and not as criminal trials which adjudicate allegations and are led by evidence. And if I, if I may jump in very fast, I think that this is also manifested by the fact. So ICC has a little bit of a system in place, right? So, so, so there, are, there is a possibility of states entering into relocation agreements when it comes to people who actually serve their sentences or acquitted. And by now, if I'm correct, only one state actually agreed to sign this relocation agreement, which is Argentina. That's it. So What an anomaly that states are far readier to have ICC convictees in their prisons than to have acquittees on their territory. You know, very happy to sign up and say you can send these guys to us to be incarcerated, but have them wandering around? No, we don't. And that's a stigma issue too. It's an educational issue. It's because, you know, we're, we're not directing enough of our outreach as an international criminal community towards humanising 
um, defendants and acquittees. And without that, then these problems are just going to keep arising. Well, thank you very much, Barbara and Kate. Yeah, it's uh, really eye-opening to not only the details of what's going on in Niger, but just considering the whole architecture of uh, this world that, that we keep on covering. We always finish our podcast with a couple of standard questions. And the first one is, are there any cases that you would like to point out that your favorites, maybe when you go to teach students that you always refer to this case, or maybe one of the ones that you worked on in the past? Uh, start with you, Barbara. Is there any any case that you want to uh, to mention to us? Well, I think I will, I will react to Kate and humanizing defendants. And I thought of the documentary, Unforgiven about about Esat Lanjo, so it's not ICTR, it's ICTY again, but it's a very good good movie, I think, which I would recommend to everyone because Lanjo was convicted of sexual violence, served his sentence actually, and he's one of the very few who seems to be remorseful and really tried to do something about it. And a Danish documentary maker made a very impressive documentary about him. So people can Google it, I think. Kate? That's just put me in mind of my favourite documentary around ICL, which is a beautiful film that was made about Judge Mosa, who was the president of the ICTR, and he presided over the Military One trial that I was part of. And in my mind, hands down, he was, you know, one of the most incredible and compassionate jurists that we've seen on the bench. And the film is called, I think, Telling Truths in Arusha, Telling Truths in mm-hmm. Rome. And it's it's an insight into a trial that he presides over, the Insangumana trial, I think, that Barbora was talking about, and it's a really beautiful film. And I have to say, actually, I try and do one thing for Prosper every day, just one little thing to try and move this forward. And one of the things that I tried was to write letters to all the former presidents and prosecutors and principals of the ICTR to see if they could pull any sort of diplomatic strings for us. And the first response I got back was from Judge Mosa saying, I didn't know about this. Thank you for telling me about this. I'm going to go and talk to my ministry, which is exactly the right attitude from from someone who used to work at the ICTR. So it's a beautiful film. I've just gone way too long. You just wanted a one-word one answer and I gave you 10 minutes. But, yeah, it's it's really worth watching. No, we kind of segued into our next thing. This was about what's your favorite fort court case or what do you tell about? And then their next question is, what are you watching, listening, reading to that you recommend to our audience? Now you have both recommended these documentaries. So are, is there any stuff that you do to kind of get away from post-convict issues or to wind down after a long day in court that you would recommend to our listeners? And we'll start with Barbara. Okay, glass of wine. (laughs) 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 And I read a book recently, and I'm going to again bring in actually Czech Czech novelist, Bohumil Herabal, who wrote a really beautiful novel about living under, under repression. So it's getting a little bit away, not entirely. I'm still not letting go. And uh, it's called Too Loud a Solitude. It's like a very, very tiny book, but uh, full of beautiful observations, language, and it has been translated to English. And I would recommend it for everyone with a glass of good red wine. Okay. I just... 
I don't have an answer to this. I should turn my laptop around so you can see the piles of paper around my office that I still have to read. (laughs) What I will say, though, is one thing that's really wonderful about the practice of international criminal law, particularly from the defence perspective, is the camaraderie and the the connections and the friends that you make in the defence corridor. So if I ever am not reading the piles of paper in my office, being able to connect with, with this community that we've built usually over a glass of wine, is really wonderful. So I think that's where I head to sort of our friends and connections in this field if I if I take a night off. No, this sounds like Janet and I spent our uh, yesterday having drinks with all the NGOs and kind of legal people in The Hague. So this is also what we do to wind down. So even though we're always asking people what they recommend to wind down, usually we're also reading war crimes books and stuff like that. It's hard. There's so much good stuff out there to read and learn in this field and because it's so inherently interesting that it it really it doesn't feel like it's still work right well thank you both very much for making time to take part today and uh hope to bump into you in the corridors of uh this uh weird world that uh that we're all a little bit part of thanks very much thank Thank you you. thanks see you again soon bye-bye This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word. If you like our show, please consider supporting us. You can join us on Patreon. For as little as a few euros or dollars a month, you will get our exclusive War Criminals book club episodes, other goodies, and you'll earn yourself a shout out on the podcast. Look for the link on our webpage or go to patreon.com and search for Asymmetrical Haircuts.